0: Book eight. Let me, O my God, remember with thanks to Thee, and confess Thy mercies upon me. Let my bones be pierced through with Thy love, and let them say, Who is like unto Thee, O Lord? Thou hast broken my bonds, I will sacrifice to Thee the sacrifice of praise. How Thou hast broken them I shall tell, and all who adore Thee will say as they listen, Blessed be the Lord in heaven and on earth, great and wonderful is His name. Your words had rooted deep in my heart, and I was fenced about on all sides by you. Of your eternal life I was now certain, though I saw it in a dark manner and as through a glass. All my former doubt about an incorruptible substance, from which every substance has its being, was taken from me. My desire now was not to be more sure of you, but more steadfast in you. But in my temporal life all was uncertain. My heart had to be purged of the old leaven. The way, our Savior himself, delighted me, but I still shrank from actually walking away so straight. Then by you it came into my mind, and the idea appealed strongly to me, to go to Simplicianus, whom I knew to be your good servant, for your grace shown in him. I had heard that from his youth he had lived in great love of you. He was now grown old, and it seemed to me that from a long lifetime spent in so firm a following of your way, he must have experienced much and learned much. And truly so it was. I hoped that if I conferred with him about my problems, he might from that experience and learning show me the best way for one affected as I was to walk in your path. For I saw the church full, and one went this way and one that, but I was unhappy at the life I led in the world. And it was indeed a heavy burden, for the hope of honour and profit no longer inflamed my desire, as formerly, to help me bear so exacting a servitude. These things delighted me no longer in comparison with your sweetness and the beauty of your house which I loved. But what still held me tight bound was my need of woman, nor indeed did the Apostle forbid me to marry, though he exhorted to a better state, wishing all men to be as he was himself. But I in my weakness was for choosing the softer place, and this one thing kept me from taking a sure line upon others. I was weary and wasted with the cares that were eating into me, all because there were many things which I was unwilling to suffer, but had to put up with for the sake of living with a wife, a way of life to which I was utterly bound. I had heard from the mouth of truth itself that there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. But Christ had said, He that can take it, let him take it. Certainly all men are vain in whom there is not the knowledge of God, and who cannot by these good things that are seen find him that is. Now I was no longer in that sort of vanity, I had gone beyond it, and in the testimony of the whole creation I had found you, our Creator, and your Word who is with you, and one God with you, by whom you created all things. But there is another sort of godlessness, that of the men who, knowing God, have not glorified him as God or given thanks. Into this also I had fallen but your right hand upheld me, and taking me out of it, placed me where I might find health. For you have said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and again, be not desirous to seem wise, for those who affirm themselves to be wise become fools. I had now found the pearl of great price, and I ought to have sold all I had and bought it, but I hesitated still. Chapter 2 So I went to Simplicianus, who had begotten Ambrose, now bishop, into your grace, and whom indeed Ambrose loved as a father. I told him all the wanderings of my error, but when I told him that I had read certain books of the Platonists which had been translated into Latin by Victorinus, one-time professor of rhetoric in Rome, who had, so I heard, died a Christian, he congratulated me for not having fallen upon the writings of other philosophers which are full of vain deceits, according to the elements of this world, whereas in the Platonists God and his word are everywhere implied. Then to draw me on to the humility of Christ, hidden from the wise and revealed to little ones, he began to speak of Victorinus himself, whom he had known intimately when he was in Rome of Victorinus he told me when i shall now set down for the story glorifies your grace and it should be told to your glory for here was an old man deeply learned trained in all the liberal sciences a man who had read and weighed so many of the philosopher's writings the teacher of so many distinguished senators a man who on account of the brilliance of his teaching had earned and been granted a statue in the roman forum an honor the citizens of this world think so great he had grown old in the worship of idols, had taken part in their sacrilegious rites, for almost all the Roman nobility at that time was enthusiastic for them, and was ever talking of prodigies and the monster gods of every kind, and of the jackal-headed Anubis, who all had once fought against the Roman deities Neptune and Venus and Minerva, and had been beaten. Yet Rome was on its knees before these gods it had conquered. All this Victorinus with his thunder of eloquence had gone on championing for so many years even into old age. Yet he thought it no shame to be the child of your Christ, an infant at your font, bending his neck under the yoke of humility, and his forehead to the ignominy of the cross. O Lord, Lord, who dost bow down thy heavens and descend, dost touch the mountains and they smoke, by what means didst thou find thy way into that breast? He read, so Simplicianus said, Holy Scripture. He investigated all the Christian writings most carefully and minutely, and he said not publicly, but to Simplicianus privately, and as one friend to another, I would have you know that I am now a Christian. Simplicianus answered, I shall not believe it, nor count you among Christians, unless I see you in the Church of Christ. Victorinus asked with some faint mockery, Then is it the walls that make Christians? He went on saying that he was a Christian, and Simplicianus went on with the same denial, and Victorinus always repeated his retort about the walls. The fact was that he feared to offend his friends, important people and worshippers of these demons. He feared that their enmity might fall heavily upon him from the height of their Babylon dignity, as from the cedars of Lebanon which the Lord had not yet brought down. But when by reading in all earnestness he had drawn strength, he grew afraid that Christ might deny him before his angels if he were ashamed to confess Christ before men. He felt that he was guilty of a great crime in being ashamed of the sacraments of the lowliness of your word, when he had not been ashamed of the sacrilegious rites of those demons of pride whom in his pride he had worshipped. So he grew proud towards vanity and humble towards truth. Quite suddenly and without warning he said to Simplicianus, as Simplicianus told me, Let us go to the church. I wish to be made a Christian. Simplicianus, unable to control his joy, went with him. He was instructed in the first mysteries of the faith, and not long after gave in his name that he might be regenerated by baptism, to the astonishment of Rome and the joy of the church. The proud saw it, and were enraged, ground their teeth, and were livid with envy. But the Lord God was the hope of his servant, so that he had no regard for vanities and lying follies. Finally, when the hour had come for his profession of faith, which at Rome was usually made by those who were about to enter into your grace in a set form of words learned and memorized and spoken from a platform in the sight of the faithful, Simplicianus told me that the priests offered Victorinus to let him make the profession in private, as the custom was with such as seemed likely to find the ordeal embarrassing. But he preferred to make profession of salvation in the sight of the congregation and church, for there had been no salvation in the rhetoric he had taught, yet he had professed it publicly. Obviously, therefore, he should be in less fear of your meek flock when he was uttering your word, since he had had no fear of the throng of the deluded when uttering his own. When, therefore, he had gone up to make his profession, all those who knew him began whispering his name to one another with congratulatory murmurs, and, indeed, who there did not know him? And from the lips of the rejoicing congregation sounded the whisper, Victorinus, Victorinus. They were quick to utter their exultation at seeing him, and as quickly fell silent to hear him. He uttered the true faith with glorious confidence, and they would gladly have snatched him to their very heart. Indeed, they did take him to their heart in their love and their joy. With those hands they took him. Chapter 3 O loving God, what is it in men that makes them rejoice more for the salvation of a soul that was despaired of, or one delivered from a major peril, than if there had always been hope, or the peril had been less? Even you, O merciful Father, rejoice more upon one sinner doing penance than upon ninety and nine just who need not penance. It is with special joy that we hear how the lost sheep is brought home upon the exultant shoulders of the shepherd, and how the coin is put back into your treasury, while the neighbors rejoice with the woman who found it. And the joy we feel at Mass in your church brings tears as we hear of that younger son who was dead and made alive again, who had been lost and was found. You rejoice in us and in your angels who stand fast in holy charity, for you are ever the same because you ever know, and in the one way of knowing, all those things which are not always existent nor always the same. What is it in the soul, I ask again, that makes it delight more to have found or regained the things it loves than if it had always had them? Creatures other than man bear the same witness, and all things are filled with testimonies acclaiming that it is so. The victorious general has his triumph, but he would not have been victorious if he had not fought, and the greater danger there was in the battle, the greater rejoicing in the triumph. The storm tosses the sailors and threatens to wreck the ship. All are pale with the threat of death. But the sky grows clear, the sea calm, and now they are as wild with exultation as before with fear." A friend is sick, and his pulse threatens danger. All who want him well feel as if they shared his sickness. He begins to recover, though he cannot yet walk as strongly as of old, and there is more joy than there was before, when he was still well and could walk properly. Note, too, that men procure the actual pleasures of human life by way of pain. I mean not only the pain that comes upon us unlooked for and beyond our will, but unpleasantness planned and willingly accepted. There is no pleasure in eating or drinking, unless the discomfort of hunger and thirst come before. Drunkards eat salty things to develop a thirst so great as to be painful, and pleasure arises when the liquor quenches the pain of the thirst. And it is the custom that promised brides do not give themselves at once, lest the husband should hold the gift cheap, unless delay had set him craving. We see this in base and dishonorable pleasure, but also in the pleasure that is licit and permitted, and again in the purest and most honorable friendship. We have seen it in the case of him who had been dead and was brought back to life, who had been lost and was found. Universally the greater joy is heralded by greater pain. What does this mean, O Lord my God, when Thou art an eternal joy to Thyself, Thou Thyself art joy itself, and things about Thee ever rejoice in Thee? What does it mean that this part of creation thus alternates between need felt and need met, between discord and harmony? Is this their mode of being, this what Thou didst give them, when from the heights of heaven to the lowest earth, from the beginning of time to the end, from the angel to the worm, from the first movement to the last, Thou didst set all kinds of good things, and all Thy just works, each in its place, each in its season? Alas for me, how high art thou in the highest, how deep in the deepest! And thou dost never depart from us, yet with difficulty do we return to thee. Chapter 4 Come, Lord, work upon us, call us back, set us on fire, and clasp us close. Be fragrant to us, draw us to thy loveliness, let us love, let us run to thee. Do not many from a deeper pit of blindness than Victorinus come back to thee, enlightened by that light in which they receive from thee the power to be made thy sons? But because they are not so well known, there is less rejoicing over them, even by those who do know them. For when many rejoice together, the joy of each one is richer. They warm themselves at each other's flame. Further, in so far as they are known widely, they guide many to salvation, and are bound to be followed by many. So that even those who have gone before rejoice much on their account, because the rejoicing is not only on their account. It would be shameful if in your tabernacle the persons of the rich should be welcome before the poor, or the nobly born before the rest since thou hast rather chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong and hast chosen the base things of the world and the things that are contemptible and things that are not in order to bring to naught things that are it was by paul's tongue that you uttered these words yet when paulus the proconsul came under the light yoke of christ and became a simple subject of the great king his pride brought low by the apostles spiritual might even that least of your apostles now desired to be called paul in place of his former name of saul for the glory of so great a victory Victory over the enemy is greater when we win from him a man whom he holds more strongly, and through whom he holds more people. He has a firmer hold on the eminent by reason of their noble rank, and through them he holds very many people by reason of their authority. Therefore the heart of Victorinus was all the more welcome because the devil had held it as an impregnable fortress, and the tongue of Victorinus because it was a strong sharp weapon with which the devil had slain many. It was right for your sons to rejoice with more abounding joy, because our king had bound the strong man, and they saw his vessels taken from him, and cleansed, and made available unto your honor, and profitable to the Lord unto every good work. Chapter 5 Now when this man of yours, Simplicianus, had told me the story of Victorinus, I was on fire to imitate him, which indeed was why he had told me. He added that in the time of the Emperor Julian, when a law was made prohibiting Christians from teaching literature and rhetoric, Victorinus had obeyed the law, preferring to give up his own school of words rather than your word, by which you make eloquent the tongues of babes. In this he seemed to me not only courageous, but actually fortunate, because it gave him the chance to devote himself wholly to you. I longed for the same chance, but I was bound not with the iron of another's chains, but by my own iron will. The enemy held my will, and of it he made a chain and bound me. Because my will was perverse, it changed to lust and lust yielded to became habit, and habit not resisted became necessity. These were like links hanging one on another, which is why I have called it a chain, and their hard bondage held me bound hand and foot. The new will which I now began to have, by which I willed to worship you freely and to enjoy you, O God, the only certain joy, was not yet strong enough to overcome that earlier will, rooted deep through the years. My two wills, one old, one new, one carnal, one spiritual, were in conflict, and in their conflict wasted my soul. Thus with myself as object of the experiment, I came to understand what I had read, how the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. I indeed was in both camps, but more in that which I approved in myself than in that which I disapproved. For in a sense it was now no longer I that was in this second camp, because in large part I rather suffered it unwillingly than did it with my will. Yet habit had grown stronger against me by my own act, since I had come willingly where I did not now will to be. Who can justly complain when just punishment overtakes the sinner, I no longer had the excuse which I used to think I had for not yet forsaking the world and serving you, the excuse namely that I had no certain knowledge of the truth. By now I was quite certain, but I was still bound to earth and refused to take service in your army. I feared to be freed of all the things that impeded me, as strongly as I ought to have feared the being impeded by them. I was held down as agreeably by this world's baggage as one often is by sleep, and indeed the thoughts with which I meditated upon you were like the efforts of a man who wants to get up but is so heavy with sleep that he simply sinks back into it again. There is no one who wants to be asleep always, for every sound judgment holds that it is best to be awake. Yet a man often postpones the effort of shaking himself awake when he feels a sluggish heaviness in the limbs and settles pleasurably into another doze, though he knows he should not because it is time to get up. Similarly, I regarded it as settled that it would be better to give myself to your love rather than go on yielding to my own lust. But the first course delighted and convinced my mind, the second delighted my body and held it in bondage. For there was nothing I could reply when you called me, Rise, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall enlighten thee. And whereas you showed me by every evidence that your words were true, there was simply nothing I could answer, save only laggard, lazy words, Soon, quite soon, give me just a little while. But soon and quite soon did not mean any particular time, and just a little while went on for a long while. It was in vain that I delighted in thy law, according to the inner man, when that other law in my members rebelled against the law of my mind and led me captive in the law of sin that was in my members. For the law of sin is the fierce force of habit by which the mind is drawn and held even against its will, and yet deservedly because it had fallen willfully into the habit. Who then should deliver me from the body of this death but thy grace only through Jesus Christ our Lord? Chapter 6 Now, O Lord, my Helper and my Redeemer, I shall tell and confess to your name how you delivered me from the chain of that desire of the flesh which held me so bound, and the servitude of worldly things. I went my usual way with a mind ever more anxious, and day after day I sighed for you. I would be off to your church as often as my business, under the weight of which I groaned, left me free. Olypius was with me, at liberty from his legal office after a third term as assessor and waiting for private clients to whom he might sell his legal advice, just as I sold skill in speaking, if indeed this can be bought. Nibridius had yielded to our friendship so far as to teach under Veracundus, a great friend of all of us, a citizen and elementary school teacher of Milan, who had earnestly asked, and indeed by right of friendship demanded from our company, the help he badly needed. Nibridius was not influenced in the matter by any desire for profit, for he could have done better had he chosen, in a more advanced school. But he was a good and gracious friend, and too kindly a man to refuse our requests. But he did it all very quietly, for he did not want to draw the attention of those persons whom the world holds great. He thus avoided distraction of mind, for he wanted to have his mind free and at leisure, for as many hours as possible, to seek or read or hear truths concerning wisdom. On a certain day, Nebritius was away for some reason I cannot recall, there came to Olypius and me at our house one Potentianus, a fellow countryman of ours, being from Africa, holder of an important post in the emperor's court. There was something or other he wanted of us, and we sat down to discuss the matter. As it happened he noticed a book on a gaming table by which we were sitting. He picked it up, opened it, and found that it was the Apostle Paul, which surprised him because he had expected that it would be one of the books I wore myself out teaching. Then he smiled a little and looked at me, and expressed pleasure but surprise too at having come suddenly upon that book, and only that book, lying before me. For he was a Christian, and a devout Christian. He knelt before you in church, O our God, in daily prayer and many times daily. I told him that I had given much care to these writings— whereupon he began to tell the story of the egyptian monk antony whose name was held in high honor among your servants although alypius and i had never heard it before that time when he learned this he was the more intent upon telling the story anxious to introduce so great a man to men ignorant of him and very much marveling at our ignorance but alypius and i stood amazed to hear of your wonderful works done in the true faith and in the catholic church so recently practically in our own times and with such numbers of witnesses all three of us were filled with wonder we because the deeds we were now hearing were so great and he because we had never heard them before. From this story he went on to the great groups in the monasteries, and their ways all redolent of you, of all of which we knew nothing. There was actually a monastery at Milan, outside the city walls. It was full of worthy brethren, and under the care of Ambrose, and we had not heard of it. He continued with his discourse, and we listened in absolute silence. It chanced that he told how on one occasion he and three of his companions, it was at Treves, when the emperor was at the chariot races in the circus, had gone one afternoon to walk in the gardens close by the city walls. As it happened, they fell into two groups, one of the others staying with him, and the other two likewise walking their own way. But as those other two strolled on, they came into a certain house, the dwelling of some servants of yours, poor in spirit, of whom is the kingdom of God. There they found a small book in which was written the life of Anthony. One of them began to read it, marveled at it, was inflamed by it. While he was actually reading, he had begun to think how he might embrace such a life, and give up his worldly employment to serve you alone, for the two men were both state officials. Suddenly the man who was doing the reading was filled with a love of holiness and angry at himself with righteous shame. He looked at his friend and said to him, Tell me, please, what is the goal of our ambition in all these labors of ours? What are we aiming at? What is our motive in being in the public service? Have we any higher hope at court than to be friends of the emperor? And at that level is not everything uncertain and full of perils? And how many perils must we meet on the way to this greater peril? And how long before we are there? But if I should choose to be a friend of God, I can become one now. He said this, and all troubled with the pain of the new life coming to birth in him, he turned back his eyes to the book. He read on and was changed inwardly, where you alone could see, and the world dropped away from his mind, as soon appeared outwardly. For while he was reading, and his heart thus tossing on its own flood, at length he broke out in heavy weeping, saw the better way, and chose it for his own. Being now your servant, he said to his friend, now I have broken from that hope we had, and have decided to serve God, and I enter upon that service from this hour, in this place, If you have no will to imitate me, at least do not try to dissuade me. The other replied that he would remain his companion in so great a service for so great a prize. So the two of them, now your servants, built a spiritual tower at the only cost that is adequate, the cost of leaving all things and following you. Then Peticianus and the man who had gone walking with him in another part of the garden came looking for them in the same place, and when they found them, suggested that they should return home as the day was now declining. But they told their decision and their purpose, and how that will had arisen in them and was now settled in them, and asked them not to try to argue them out of their decision, even if they would not also join them. Ponticianus and his friend, although not changed from their former state, yet wept for themselves, as he told us, and congratulated them in God, and commended themselves to their prayers. Then with their own heart trailing in the dust, they went off to the palace, while the other two, with their heart fixed upon heaven, remained in the hut. Both these men, as it happened, were betrothed, and when the two women heard of it, they likewise dedicated their virginity to you. CHAPTER Seven. This was the story Pontentianus told. But you, Lord, while he was speaking, turned me back towards myself, taking me from behind my own back, where I had put myself all the time that I preferred not to see myself, and you set me there before my own face that I might see how vile I was, how twisted and unclean and spotted and ulcerous. I saw myself and was horrified, but there was no way to flee from myself. If I tried to turn my gaze from myself, there was Pontentianus telling me what he was telling. And again you were setting me face to face with myself, forcing me upon my own sight, that I might see my iniquity and loathe it. I had known it, but I had pretended not to see it, had deliberately looked the other way and let it go from my mind. But this time, the more ardently I approved those two as I heard of their determination to win health for their souls by giving themselves up wholly to your healing, the more detestable did I find myself in comparison with them. For many years had flowed by, a dozen or more, from the time when I was nineteen and was stirred by the reading of Cicero's Hortensius to the study of wisdom. And here was I still postponing the giving up of this world's happiness to devote myself to the search for that of which not the finding only but the mere seeking is better than to find all the treasures and kingdoms of men, better than all the body's pleasures, though they were to be had merely for a nod. But I in my great worthlessness, for it was greater thus early, had begged you for chastity, saying, Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. For I was afraid that you would hear my prayer too soon, and too soon would heal me from the disease of lust which I wanted satisfied rather than extinguished. So I had gone wandering in my sacrilegious superstition through the base ways of the Manichaeans, not indeed that I was sure they were right, but that I preferred them to the Christians, whom I did not inquire about in the spirit of religion, but simply opposed through malice. I had thought that my reason for putting off from day to day the following of you alone to the contempt of earthly hopes was that I did not see any certain goal towards which to direct my course. But now the day was come when I stood naked in my own sight, and my conscience accused me. Why is my voice not heard? Surely you are the man who used to say that you could not cast off vanity's baggage for an uncertain truth. Very well, now the truth is certain, yet you are still carrying the load. Here are men who have been given wings to free their shoulders from the load, though they did not wear themselves out in searching, nor spend ten years or more thinking about it. Thus was I inwardly gnawed at, and I was in the grip of the most horrible and confounding shame while Ponticianus was telling his story. He finished the tale and the business for which he had come, and he went his way, and I to myself. What did I not say against myself? With what lashes of condemnation did I not scourge my soul to make it follow me, now that I wanted to follow you? My soul hung back. It would not follow, yet found no excuse for not following. All its arguments had already been used and refuted. There remained only trembling silence, for it feared as very death the cessation of that habit of which in truth it was dying. Chapter 8 In the midst of that great tumult of my inner dwelling-place, the tumult I had stirred up against my own soul in the chamber of my heart, I turned upon Olypius, wild in look and troubled in mind, crying out, What is wrong with us? What is this that you heard? The unlearned arise and take heaven by force, and here are we with all our learning, stuck fast in flesh and blood. Is there any shame in following because they have gone before us? Would it not be a worse shame not to follow at once? These words and more of the same sort I uttered, then the violence of my feeling tore me from him while he stood staring at me thunderstruck for I did not sound like myself. My brow, cheeks, eyes, flush, the pitch of my voice, spoke my mind more powerfully than the words I uttered. There was a garden attached to our lodging, of which we had the use, as indeed we had of the whole house, for our host, the master of the house, did not live there. To this garden the storm in my breast somehow brought me, for there no one could intervene in the fierce suit I had brought against myself until it should reach its issue, though what the issue was to be you knew, not I. But there I was, going mad on my way to sanity, dying on my way to life, aware how evil I was, unaware that I was to grow better in a little while. So I went off to the garden, and Elipius close on my heels, for it was still privacy for me to have him near, and how could he leave me to myself in that state? We found a seat as far as possible from the house. I was frantic in mind, in a frenzy of indignation at myself for not going over to your law and your covenant, O oh my God, where all my bones cried out that I should be, extolling it to the skies. The way was not by ship or chariot or on foot, It was not as far as I had gone when I went from the house to the place where we sat. For I had but to will to go, in order not merely to go, but to arrive. I had only to will to go, but to will powerfully and wholly, not to turn and twist a will half wounded this way and that, with the part that would rise struggling against the part that would keep to the earth. In the torment of my irresolution, I did many bodily acts. Now men sometimes will to do bodily acts but cannot, whether because they have not the limbs or because their limbs are bound or weakened with illness or in some other way unable to act. If I tore my hair, if I beat my forehead, if I locked my fingers and clasped my knees, I did it because I willed to. But I might have willed and yet not done it, if my limbs had not the pliability to do what I willed. Thus I did so many things where the will to do them was not at all the same thing as the power to do them, and I did not do what would have pleased me incomparably more to do, a thing too which I could have done as soon as I willed to, given that willing means willing wholly. For in that matter, the power was the same thing as the will, and the willing was the doing, yet it was not done. And the body more readily obeyed the slightest wish of the mind, more readily moved its limbs at the mind's mere nod, than the mind obeyed itself in carrying out its own great will, which could be achieved simply by willing. Chapter 9 Why this monstrousness, and what is the root of it? Let your mercy enlighten me, that I may put the question, whether perhaps the answer lies in the mysterious punishment that has come upon men, and some deeply hidden damage in the sons of Adam. Why this monstrousness, and what is the root of it? The mind gives the body an order, and is obeyed at once. The mind gives itself in order, and is resisted. The mind commands the hand to move, and there is such readiness that you can hardly distinguish the command from its execution, yet the mind is mind, whereas the hand is body. The mind commands the mind to will, the mind is itself, but it does not do it. Why this monstrousness, and what is the root of it? The mind, I say, commands itself to will. It would not give the command unless it willed, yet it does not do what it commands. The trouble is that it does not totally will, therefore it does not totally command. It commands insofar as it wills, and it disobeys the command insofar as it does not will. The will is commanding itself to be a will, commanding itself, not some other. But it does not in its fullness give the command, so that what it commands is not done. For if the will were so in its fullness, it would not command itself to will, for it would already will. It is therefore no monstrousness, partly to will, partly not to will, but a sickness of the soul to be so weighted down by custom that it cannot wholly rise even with the support of truth. Thus there are two wills in us. Because neither of them is entire, and what is lacking to the one is present in the other. Chapter 10. Let them perish from thy presence, O God, as perish vain talkers and seducers of the soul, who, observing that there are two wills at issue in our coming to a decision, proceed to assert, as the Manichees do, that there are two minds in us of different natures, one good, one evil. For they are evil themselves in holding such evil opinions. And they will become good only if they perceive truth and come to it as your Apostle says to them, You were heretofore darkness, but now light in the Lord. But these men, though they want to be light, want to be light in themselves and not in the Lord, imagining the nature of the soul to be the same as God. Thus they become not light but deeper darkness, since in their abominable arrogance they have gone further from you, the true light that enlightens every man that comes into this world. Take heed what you say and blush for shame. Draw near unto him and be enlightened, and your faces shall not be ashamed. When I was deliberating about serving the Lord my God, as I had long meant to do, it was I who willed to do it, I who was unwilling. It was I. I did not wholly will, I was not wholly unwilling. Therefore I strove with myself and was distracted by myself. This distraction happened to me though I did not want it, and it showed me not the presence of some second mind, but the punishment of my own mind. Thus it was not I who caused it, but the sin that dwells in me, the punishment of a sin freely committed by Adam, whose son I am. For if there be as many contrary natures in man as there are wills in conflict with one another, then there are not two natures in us but several. Take the case of a man trying to make up his mind whether he would go to the Manichees' meeting house or to the theater. The Manichees would say, here you have two natures, one good, bringing him to the meeting house, the other evil, taking him away. How else could you have this wavering between two wills pulling against each other? Now I say that both are bad, the will that would take him to the Manichees and the will that would take him to the theater. But they hold that the will by which one comes to them is good. Very well. Supposing one of us is trying to decide in wavering between two wills in conflict whether to go to the theater or to our church, will not the Manichees be in some trouble about an answer? For either they must admit, which they do not want to, that a good will would take a man to our church, as they think it is a good will that brings those who are receivers of their sacrament and belonging to them to their church, or they must hold that there are two evil natures and two evil wills at conflict in one man, and what they are always saying will not be true, namely that there is one good will and one evil will. Otherwise, they must be converted to the truth and not deny that when a man is taking a decision, there is one soul drawn this way and that by diverse wills. Therefore, when they perceive that there are two wills in conflict in man, they must not say that there are two opposing minds in conflict, one good, one bad, from two opposing substances and two opposing principles. For you, O God of truth, refute them and disprove them and convict them of error, As in the case where both wills are bad, when, for instance, a man is deliberating whether he shall kill another man by poison or by dagger, whether he should seize this or that part of another man's property when he cannot seize both, whether he should spend his money on lust or hoard his money through avarice, whether he should go to the games or the theater if they happen both to come on the same day. Let us add a third possibility to this last man, whether he should go and commit a theft from someone else's house if the occasion should arise, and indeed a fourth, whether he should go and commit adultery if the chance occurs at the same time. If all four things come together at the same point of time, and all are equally desired, yet all cannot be done, then they tear the mind by the conflicting pull of four wills, or even more, given the great mass of things which can be desired. Yet the Manichees do not hold such a multitude of different substances. The same reasoning applies to wills that are good. For I ask them whether it is good to find delight in the reading of the Apostle, and good to find delight in the serenity of a psalm, and good to discuss the Gospel. To each of these they answer that it is good. But if all these things attract us at the same moment... Are not different wills tugging at the heart of man while we deliberate which we should choose? Thus they are all good, yet they are all in conflict until one is chosen, and then the whole will is at rest and at one, whereas it had been divided into many. Or again when eternity attracts the higher faculties, and the pleasure of some temporal good holds the lower, it is one same soul that wills both, but not either with its whole will. And it is therefore torn both ways, and deeply troubled, while truth shows the one way is better, but habit keeps it to the other. Chapter 11 Thus I was sick at heart and in torment, accusing myself with a new intensity of bitterness, twisting and turning in my chain, in the hope that it might be utterly broken, for what held me was so small a thing, but it still held me, and you stood in the secret places of my soul, O Lord, in the harshness of your mercy, redoubling the scourges of fear and shame, lest I should give way again, and that small slight tie which remained should not be broken, but should grow again to full strength, and bind me closer even than before. For I kept saying within myself, Let it be now, let it be now and by the mere words I had begun to move towards the resolution. I almost made it, yet I did not quite make it. But I did not fall back into my original state, but, as it were, stood near to get my breath. And I tried again, and I was almost there, and now I could all but touch it and hold it, yet I was not quite there, and I did not touch it or hold it. I still shrank from dying unto death and living unto life. The lower condition which had grown habitual was more powerful than the better condition which I had not tried. The nearer the point of time came in which I was to become different, the more it struck me with horror. But it did not force me utterly back, nor turn me utterly away, but held me there between the two. Those trifles of all trifles and vanities of vanities, my one-time mistresses held me back, plucking at my garment of flesh and murmuring softly, Are you sending us away? And from this moment shall we not be with you, now or forever? And from this moment shall this or that not be allowed you, now or forever? What were they suggesting to me in the phrase I have written, this or that? What were they suggesting to me, O my God? Do you in your mercy keep from the soul of your servant the vileness and uncleanness they were suggesting? And now I began to hear them not half so loud. They no longer stood against me face to face, but were softly muttering behind my back, and, as I tried to depart, plucking stealthily at me to make me look behind. Yet even that was enough, so hesitating was I, to keep me from snatching myself free, from shaking them off and leaping upwards on the way I was called. For the strong force of habit said to me, Do you think you can live without them? But by this time its voice was growing fainter, In the direction towards which I had turned my face and was quivering in fear of going, I could see the austere beauty of continence, serene and indeed joyous but not evilly, honourably soliciting me to come to her and not linger, stretching forth loving hands to receive and embrace me, hands full of multitudes of good examples. With her I saw such hosts of young men and maidens, a multitude of youth and of every age, grey widows and women grown old in virginity, and in them all, continence herself, not barren, but the fruitful mother of children, her joys, by you, lord, her spouse. And she smiled upon me, and her smile gave me courage, as if she were saying, Can you not do what these men have done, what these women have done? Or could men or women have done such in themselves, and not in the Lord their God? The Lord their God gave me to them. Why do you stand upon yourself, and so not stand at all? Cast yourself upon him, and be not afraid. He will not draw away, and let you fall. Cast yourself without fear. He will receive you, and heal you. Yet I was still ashamed, for I could still hear the murmuring of those vanities, and I still hung hesitant. And again it was as if she said, Stop your ears against your unclean members, that they may be mortified. They tell you of delights, but not of such delights as the law of the Lord your God tells. This was the controversy raging in my heart, a controversy about myself against myself. And Olypius stayed by my side and awaited in silence the issue of such agitation as he had never seen in me. Chapter 12 When my most searching scrutiny had drawn up all my vileness from the secret depths of my soul and heaped it in my heart's sight, A mighty storm arose in me, bringing a mighty rain of tears. That I might give way to my tears and lamentations, I rose from Olypius, for it struck me that solitude was more suited to the business of weeping. I went far enough from him to prevent his presence from being an embarrassment to me. So I felt, and he realized it. I suppose I had said something, and the sound of my voice was heavy with tears. I arose, but he remained where we had been sitting, still in utter amazement. I flung myself down somehow under a certain fig tree, and no longer tried to check my tears, which poured forth from my eyes in a flood, an acceptable sacrifice to thee. And much I said, not in these words but to this effect, And thou, O Lord, how long? How long, Lord? Wilt thou be angry for ever? Remember not our former iniquities. For I felt that I was still bound by them, and I continued my miserable complaining, How long, how long shall I go on saying to-morrow and again to-morrow? Why not now? Why not have an end to my uncleanness this very hour? Such things I said, weeping in the most bitter sorrow of my heart and suddenly I heard a voice from some nearby house, a boy's voice or a girl's voice, I do not know, but it was a sort of sing-song, repeated again and again, Take and read, take and read. I ceased weeping and immediately began to search my mind most carefully as to whether children were accustomed to chant these words in any kind of game, and I could not remember that I had ever heard any such thing. Damming back the flood of my tears I arose, interpreting the incident as quite certainly a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the passage at which I should open. For it was part of what I had been told about Anthony, that from the Gospel which he happened to be reading, he had felt that he was being admonished as though what he read was spoken directly to himself, Go, sell what thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. By this experience he had been in that instant converted to you. So I was moved to return to the place where Olypius was sitting, for I had put down the Apostle's book there when I arose. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the passage upon which my eyes first fell, Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and impurities, not in contention and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh in its concupiscences. Romans 13.13 I had no wish to read further, and no need. For in that instant, with the very ending of the sentence, it was as though a light of utter confidence shone in all my heart, and all the darkness of uncertainty vanished away. Then leaving my finger in the place or marking it by some other sign, I closed the book, and in complete calm told the whole thing to Olypius, and he similarly told me what had been going on in himself, of which I knew nothing. He asked to see what I had read. I showed him, and he looked further than I had read. I had not known what followed, and this is what followed. Now him that is weak in faith take unto you. He applied this to himself, and told me so, and he was confirmed by this message, and with no troubled wavering gave himself to God's good will and purpose, a purpose indeed most suited to his character for in these matters he had been immeasurably better than I. Then we went into my mother and told her, to her great joy. We related how it had come about. She was filled with triumphant exaltation, and praised you who are mighty beyond what we ask or conceive, for she saw that you had given her more than with all her pitiful weeping she had ever asked. For you converted me to yourself, so that I no longer sought a wife nor any of this world's promises, but stood upon that same rule of faith in which you had shown me to her so many years before. Thus you changed her mourning into joy, a joy far richer than she had thought to wish, a joy much dearer and purer than she had thought to find in grandchildren of my flesh.